1: And I am Sarah Evers-Conrad from Lexington, Kentucky, and you are listening to the monthly Horse Illustrated episode of Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for January 25th. Good morning, horse world.
0: The fourth Tuesday of every month is all about your
2: passion for horses. Nurture your knowledge with informative and entertaining
0: interviews brought to you by Horse Illustrated Magazine. Well, first of all, I can't believe it's the end of January already. Let's start there. Um, No, I've I've lost some of my month, but uh, I think everybody's going – it's just going way too fast already.
1: It really is. It really is. Um...
0: And you guys have deadlines and new magazines. I I don't know. You know, I, I have the deadline thing with, obviously, the podcasts every day. But I can't imagine having to fill, you know, 100 pages of a magazine as often as you guys do. oh we
1: just finished two deadlines we just finished um horse illustrated and young rider and young riders going to six times a year now instead of four So we get more work for you. We we never could fit in all the amazing topics that all our freelancers uh, suggest. And so I'm really excited because we have so many great topics for the kids and they just clamored for it. They kept asking and emailing and writing. And so I'm glad we can provide
0: that. Oh, wow. That's very exciting. I didn't know about that. Well, congratulations. Yeah. There's not too many magazines in the world that are increasing production and not decreasing production. So, yeah, uh, we're lucky that way. Yeah, so. that makes you guys Can't an complain. exception. So, what's we have a full show today? We have uh, three guests coming up, right?
1: Yes. So, on today's show, we speak to Julie Atwood, who is the founder of the Halter Project. An equestrian photographer, Shelly Paulson, who is featured in Horse Illustrated and I believe Young Rider as well quite often and has had many of our covers. And Dale Rudden will talk about attending horse clinics and horse training.
0: Shelley Paulson's one of those people that when you talk about photography in the horse world, her name has to come up in that top three, right? It, it, yeah. Because she's been around a long time and everybody just knows her photography. Yes, she does I mean, a great it, job.
1: She has photographed, like, people I know and done portraits. She's, of course, featured in the horse magazine. And then you find, like, the ads for, like, things like Farnham, and she'll be featured in there, you know, with her beautiful photography and, you know, all these different, like, brands that she's been featured on. And so, you know, I'm happy for her. She I've also seen her do uh, photography seminars at the American Horse Publications, and I always love those because I get to brush up on my skills and... It's it's fun. And then um, Julie does a lot with emergency management or emergency planning and disaster planning and education for the general public. And honestly, that was something that I lacked as a horse owner. I had no emergency plan when I had a horse. And, you know, I have no problem admitting that because it's something that I would go back and fix.
0: Like, oh, I guarantee you 80 percent of our people don't. That are right. listening right now, even though we talk about it all the time here on the show. And I You've we had might to be evacuate, guilty. right? Yeah, we've had to evacuate, but if I said we had to evacuate tomorrow, I'm not sure we have a plan. Um we could get it done because our horses load and, you know, all of that stuff. But do we have emergency supplies? And part of the thing is we live in Florida, so we don't get the you know, we tend not to get the fires and all that. We have we know the hurricanes coming several weeks ahead, so uh, we do get some tornadoes and things. But you know, so I I am also not the perfect one at this for sure.
1: Well, at least you don't have like twenty horses to evacuate.
0: No, you know. Well, I, that I is the thing. Bars... We have enough room. Well, that's not true. There's four horses on the property. Two are ours, and we have two spots in the horse trailer. So we'd have to make multiple trips anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, we're not prepared either. Um, I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> so, hey, well, the magic big barns. <laughs> yeah.
1: I don't know how they do it. You know,
0: I don't either. A lot of trips and a lot of friends is how they do it.
1: And this episode is brought to you by title sponsor Straight Arrow Products. Cuts, scrapes, and rubs are not an if moment, but a when moment for horse owners. Make main and tail protect spray a staple in your safety and care routine when it comes to treating wounds or bacterial infections. The easy trigger spray bottle makes treatment quick and painless for both horse and rider. While its antimicrobial properties give it the power to ward off infection-causing bacteria, keep the safety check nerves at bay with Mane and Tail Protect Spray. Our first guest is Julie Atwood. Julie is the founder and director of The Halter Project, which fills a regional need in California's northern and bay areas for information, resources, and training to help horse owners be prepared for disasters as well as common emergencies. Well, welcome to the podcast, Julie. It's great to have you here. It is great to be here. Now, for the audience that doesn't know, we've been trying to get Julie on actually since July, but she had a really busy 2021 uh, dealing with a lot of different things in California with various fires and whatnot.
3: Um, So I'm glad we finally get to have you on. I am too, and I'm glad that, fingers crossed, you have my undivided attention. (laughs) We just had a big wind event on Friday, Saturday, so fortunately that's passed. But yeah, it's great to be here.
1: I bet you're our guest that has had to pay attention to the weather the most out of anyone.
3: Well, I don't know about out of anyone. Certainly where you all are right now, you've had a lot of weather to pay attention to. And in general, paying attention to the weather, regardless of where you live, is a really important thing to do. It's a part of what we call situational awareness, and especially if you have animals, and most especially if those animals are equines, it's just a really important thing to build into your daily life. Just be aware of what's what's going on around you and what might be ahead of you. Exactly.
1: So you created the Halter Project in 2013 when your horse Stubby had an accident. Can you tell us what happened and how that night that night impacted you so much that you've dedicated your life to helping others deal with like all these emergencies and disaster situations and you know the whole gambit of what Halter Project does?
3: Yes. Well, sadly, or sort of good news, bad news is that Stubby's accident was probably the single most common type of incident that occurs to our horses or all of us who have horses and are fortunate enough to keep them into their later years. So Hubby, so hubby Stubby was, you know, one of our just golden, golden horses. He was that great gelding that you have once in a lifetime. He was in his mid-20s, but he had a really bad knee. He had arthritis. He'd had it for a long time. was really game Um, it was a super cold for us here in Sonoma County December night it was raining lightly the ground was slippery it was in the 20s he lay down um, to you know as they do and at some point he probably stretched out to rest and he rolled down the barely barely perceptible incline there was just enough of a slope that um, he lay down and he ended up sliding a little bit and his head was downhill and his legs were uphill. And how many of our listeners have seen that happen, watched that happen, and sometimes they can, you know, struggle back to their feet, but if it's slippery and they're cold and they're old and they have arthritis, they usually can't. So unfortunately, I was alone. I was the only one on the ranch. I knew exactly what I needed to do. I just didn't have the physical ability to do it by myself. And I knew that, Technical large animal rescue skills were out there for the learning, and that to be able to rescue an animal in that kind of situation or something far worse, you just needed to know how to do it, a little bit of basic equipment, but you need a lot of muscle. And usually that muscle is going to be most immediately available through your fire department. And so teaching those people, those resources, how to Handle large animals when they get themselves stuck or down and can't get up, and to do it safely, and to be able to interact with the owners, with a veterinarian, with other available resources was really important. So while I sat out there wrapped up in a horse blanket trying to keep Stubby warm, waiting for the vet to get there who was dealing with a colic case on the other side of the county, sound familiar? Um, mm-hmm. I. I had my Scarlett O'Hara moment. I just said, never again. I am never going to let this happen to me again, and I'm going to do whatever I can to make it, you know, less possible for other people to find themselves in a similar situation. And so the Halter Project was born on that night. I was freezing, and uh, I was Trying to keep my my horse warm, so the good news is the vet did get there. We all got him up. we were able to walk him to our covered arena where he immediately lay down in the sand. He did get up again the next morning and we did decided to um, you know kind of help him on his way out of this life and into the next one while he was up and eating and happy and with his buddies. It was a nice warm sunny day but um that was in December, and by February of 2014, so two months later, we had a training scheduled, and we started training our local volunteer fire departments. Uh, that's most often where these resources start in communities. And uh, a year later, we had over 220 local firefighters, animal control officers, animal owners, search and rescue volunteers, and a couple of equine veterinarians trained. And our project has grown from there. We're not the only people doing this. Um, there are great resources, most particularly in, uh, in the southeast. We have Rebecca Jimenez, who is uh, probably the leader in technical large animal emergency rescue training in the country, but we also have some awesome trainers in our area, and we started a train-the-trainer program, brought those educators out of retirement, and now we have two more trainers in our area and a very robust program, lots and lots and lots of awareness. So we set out to do that, and then our program grew from there into not just teaching people how to get their animals out of a, a sticky local emergency situation, but also how to be prepared for those bigger events, the big disasters. And that's now about 80% of what we do, and the technical rescue, education, outreach, and training is about 20%.
1: Well, it's always sad to hear about someone losing their horse, but the hundreds, thousands of people that you have now helped through the Halter Project, um, it's a... A silver lining to a tragic day. I can't imagine going through that. Um, what
3: that's, are some that's of the always
1: the case?
3: And if we have yeah. old animals, you know, we know we know that day is going to come, and we want it, you know, to be the best possible outcome possible for all of us.
1: So, what are some of the disasters that you train for, and also um, everyday emergencies?
3: So emergencies and disasters are different. That's one of the first things that we um, start off explaining in presentations, that the emergency is like the, the incident I just described. It's that, it's that um, sort of more common everyday accident. It usually happens without warning. It happens to you. So maybe just you or a couple of other people, one animal or a few animals, just one location, you call 911 or you know who to call for help, you get help, The vet arrives, you stabilize the animal, and it's over, and now you're into treatment and recovery. Disasters are those things that um, often we do have some advance warning for. We can prepare for them in many cases. They're big. They involve not just us, but uh, a lot of other people around us, usually many, many animals, and they can cover a very large area. So I am an animal disaster service worker. That's the the FEMA designation for volunteers who are trained to respond to disasters, um, most particularly the animal part of the disaster. And I live in Northern California, so most of the time we're responding to fires. Now, having said that, in 2017, the year started off with a potential or feared a very, very large dam collapse. That was the Oroville Dam incident. It was an evacuation of approximately 180,000 people. Had that dam failed, it would have been a a major catastrophe involving thousands of animals. It's a a ranching area, so lots and lots of equines, livestock, um, farm animals, as well as people with their pets. That very same year... In fall of 2017, we um, endured one of the first really uh, catastrophic megafires in Northern California, and that was the what's widely called the Wine Country Fires. Wine Country was not wiped out, but a big part of it um, was impacted, and one of the biggest fires started about 300 yards from our back back door. So fires are what we are training for year-round here in my area, but we are also training for earthquakes, uh, tsunamis, last week. We actually had a tsunami alert in our area. Um, Earthquakes, tsunamis, big storms, uh, just this last Friday and Saturday. We had a very accurately forecast wind event, and we had unprecedented winds in our area of um, 60 to 90-plus miles an hour on our own ranch. We had a number of really, really big trees come down, um, horse and cattle fencing, was taken out. So um, flood, fire, storm, quake, tsunami, hurricane, tornado, oh, uh, wow. you name it. Ice storm, snowstorm. You guys have been enduring some really major winter weather in your part yes. of the country. Uh, largely unprecedented for you as well. So we train for all hazards. So it's it's an all hazards approach that includes hazardous materials. So I have uh, hazmat training, specifically animal decontamination. So we train for we train for just about everything that might happen. Usually focusing on the national the natural disasters.
1: Now the focus of the nation the past few years has obviously been COVID. How would you describe the holder project's role during COVID? And did much change
3: or? expand with the global pandemic? That is such a good question, and I'm so glad you asked it. So COVID was obviously, or pandemic, was a disaster of a different kind. We don't usually think of epidemics and pandemics in modern times, but it was. And yes, many, many things changed around how we looked at preparedness, uh, how we took care of the community. So, Halter Project is very, very engaged in community outreach, preparedness, know what to do, know how to keep yourself and your animals safe. Well, in a pandemic, all of those um, issues are, they're just, compounded. They're magnified exponentially. You can't get out. You can't get to the vet. Your vet can't see you. There's a huge waiting list. Um, you have an animal that is uh, in, in critical. What do you do? What do you do if something happens to you and you are no longer able to take care of your animals? With pets, that's an issue. But when we have equines, that's a big issue. Equines magnify everything, right? <laughs> they're, they're more complicated. They scare the heck out of people. Uh, if you're not, um, if you're not an equine person, then you need to uh, you know you're not going to be available to help your neighbor or your friend or your relative. So Halder project pivoted in many ways. We, uh, we started our own program, our own relief program to help people in our community, in our county, and the North Bay to take care of their animals, mainly provide feed and supplies, deliver prescriptions to people who couldn't get out, were out of a job, had no money, so all of those things. So we did what a lot of other organizations around the country did, and we really focused on on our community. Um, on the larger scale, as a disaster responder, we started very early um, here. Our shutdown started the first week of March, and the end of March, I attended a Red Cross training, and at that training, we did a, a tabletop exercise, and the hypothetical topic was, or the topic was, uh, hypothetically, what are we going to do? How are we going to handle emergency evacuation shelters, and, and including those for animals, in a pandemic? Well... Little did we know at that time in early March uh, 2020 that was going to happen. And not only were there going to be disasters in a pandemic, they were going to be some of the biggest disasters that we'd had. It started with um, a huge, very catastrophic tornado cluster in the early spring. Moved on to hurricanes, major flooding, and storm surges in the summer, and then we had some of the largest, most catastrophic fires in California history and Oregon in the summer and fall, and it just kept rolling. It was definitely a domino effect. So we all had to learn how to think ahead, how to take care of people and animals in those environments, and the Halter Project, I will just say that I've had Serial careers and I have never worked harder, put in more hours, and I'm a volunteer, I'm not paid to do any, any of this, um, I've never worked harder, put in more more hours or worked more than I have during the pandemic, and it's all been focused on finding new and creative ways to reach people um, in multiple languages, to try to look ahead and assess the needs Now, you know, we're looking at an influx of animals in shelters, including a large number of unwanted horses. How do we take care of those animals and rehome them? How do we support people so that they can keep their equines, uh, you know, at home with them? So it's a big Pandora's box, and the short answer is it changed. We changed a lot, we pivoted a lot, we learned a lot, and we're implementing. Um, I would say everything that we've learned into new best practices and messaging that we want to share with people.
1: I think it's great when organizations can pivot to meet the current needs of whatever's going on, especially when you've got something that is constantly involving, evolving, involving current events and you know, evolving to, and
3: involving. Yes, yeah, so. <laughs> all of the above. Yes. And, uh, yeah, and we, you know, I don't want people to think that we're the only ones that we're doing it. There's so, I mean, so many nonprofits have been doing incredible work, and in this pandemic, it's really about everybody doing what they can and really trying to work together, even though we may be far apart.
1: What I love most about the Halter Project is, uh, well, one, your website, and it's a beautiful website. I since I do a lot of websites for. What I do, it's it's always fun to see a well organized, pretty website. But Thank you have you. so much information on it on its uh, halterproject.org, and uh, beyond.
4: Uh,
1: so you have all these great resources on there. And uh, what are some things that? Where can people turn for resources on developing their own personal disaster plan? In addition to Halter Projects, you know, after they browse all the information on there about for their local area's challenges, because I think it's so important. The most, to develop
3: the plan. Yeah, for the, local. Sorry, I'm sorry. I keep that's okay. over you. Yeah, we have tons and tons of information and on our um, info pages, how to get help, how to how to. You know, find your own resources, make your own disaster action plan, build your own ready kits, build your own uh, emergency supply caches. We have all the general information, the best of the best. But it's really important to know how to be connected with your local community. And so in most places, if you have equines, you start with your local animal control agency. It could be a humane society. But the the agency that contracts with the county to help animals in emergencies and disasters And um, also, in some areas, in some states and in some counties, your local Department of Agriculture and your Farm Bureau may also be good resources for people with equines. That varies widely from state to state and jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but don't count them out. So it's really important to also know how to get emergency alerts in your area. That is step one. It's easy to find that out. You go to your county emergency services website. Sometimes it's called OES. Sometimes it's called DEM for the Department of Emergency Management. But if you Google your county and emergency alerts, 95% 95% chance it'll take you directly there. You can also contact your local um, veterinary association or Association of Equine Practitioners. If you have one in your area, in your area, you probably have more than any place in the country. Um on a, on a larger scale, getting information about preparedness that's specific to equines, both the American Association of Equine Practitioners, the AAEP, and the AVMA, the American Veterinary Medical Association, now have really good resources for, for owners, uh, for animal owners, equine owners. And that's a good place to go. So, but start, start in your own backyard. That's step one.
1: Well, I know you had a list of resources uh, for us that we will make sure to include on the show notes page for this podcast episode. So if anybody wants to check out more, the website for that will be horseillustrated.com slash podcast nine for our ninth episode. And we'll make sure to include those from Julie. And I want to thank you so much for joining us.
3: Well, I want to thank you and Glenn and Horse Radio for inviting us. And being so persistent, it's really an honor um, to be part of your program and so grateful for the chance to reach your audience. So stay safe, everybody. And now
1: to the special offer we have for our podcast listeners. We have special rates posted on our website for Horse Illustrated magazine subscriptions in any format, print, digital, or a combo subscription for both options. Plus, if you want to get our sister publication for a special kid in your life, we also offer special rates on Young Rider Magazine, which is the horse magazine for tweens and teens ages 8 to 15. So check out our website at www.horseillustrated.com HRN. And our next guest is Shelley Paulson an award-winning commercial and editorial equestrian photographer based in Minnesota who has combined her deep love of horses with her passion for creating heartfelt, meaningful images to create a thriving full-time career. Her work has been published worldwide and can be seen in various equestrian publications, including Horse Illustrated, and in advertising for major equine brands. Welcome, Shelley. It's so great to have you on the Horse Illustrated episode of Horses in the Morning.
4: Thank you so much for having me. It's always fun to chat with you guys.
0: This is like old friends because we, the three of us, have known each other probably since the mid to late two thousands. Mm-hmm. So it's been a yeah. long time. <laughs> been, it has. Yeah. It has, and
4: that's that's a that's a, a cherished thing in the industry.
0: That's for sure. We've had some serious. We had a serious interview, and I know the next one's going to be a little bit serious too. So you you have to liven things up. It's your job to be the comedian today. Okay. So we're going to start with the fun question. So much pressure. What's the photo shoot you went on and it just, you don't don't name names or horses for that matter, um, but it just, it just, there was a storm that came up and a tornado came through or the horse was just gone in the next county. What was it in that one photo shoot?
4: Oh, you know, I actually have, a, have kind of a story like that where... I traveled to Nebraska, the, the state of my birth, to do a senior photo session as part of like a visit back to my family. And the night, the evening that we had, like this one evening to do the photo shoot, there was sun, there was wind, there was my hair standing on end because the lightning was so close, <laughs> and then there was tornado warning, and then at the very end, there was a rainbow.
0: <laughs> it was like
4: <laughs> wow almost all of it all in one session and a girl she had a saddlebred and and he was a trooper and she was a trooper and we ended up doing a few more photos the next morning because we got rained out at the very end and um but i'll always remember you know these i have some sessions that are or shoots that are just in like the most insane weather and it always yields my most interesting photos because i love crazy skies
0: well it it provides contrast right i mean that's what that's what you want as a photographer you really do want contrast
4: yeah i've I've had so many rainbows during my (laughs) photos i've lost one of your covers Um, on horse illustrated
1: i think had a rainbow if
4: i remember right yes that was my own horse fritzy it's so nice to have horses at home so when a a rainbow appears in the sky i can be like okay stand here look cute you know take a (laughs) picture
1: oh here's a funny note um Your other horse, your chestnut. What's his name?
4: Maysu?
1: Yeah. She's the one you put on the, um, you develop these masks for people, you know, for wearing during the pandemic. So I wear your horse on my face all the time. (laughs) That just sounds
0: disgusting. (laughs)
1: your your horse's nose is on the mask and so and I love that it was part of a um fundraiser that you did so that was great well I want to ask how you got your start because I'm always interested in people's like origin stories and like how they got into what is their biggest passion
4: well I'm gonna tell you kind of a a little roundabout story, but I'll, I'm going to make it, like, really fast when okay. we get to the good stuff. But um, I've been riding since I was about 10. Um, didn't own a horse or anything. When I was a kid, I did a lot of leasing and lessons and whatnot. Um, and then it, my main interest outside of horses was always music. And I went to college to become an opera singer. But when really? through school, I wasn't... Yes, <laughs> so I can sing you an aria and take a photo. Wow. Um, and But it does actually come in handy when I'm editing videos. So I'm really good at like editing the music down and everything. But, um, and then I, when I got out of school, I just really didn't want to go into, um, you know, performing and auditioning for a living. So I ended up working in tech support for Mac computers. And uh, before there were Apple stores and whatever, I worked for an Apple reseller. And just about that time, the internet kind of became a thing. And so I taught myself how to do websites and um, really became, you know, quite a website designer and developer. I could do the coding on the back end and everything. And then about, you know, some years into that, digital cameras became a thing. I never had the patience really to learn photography with film. But once, once the digital SLRs got into a price range that I could get into, I started taking photos for my web design clients. So, you know, construction company or a local bank or, you know, a nonprofit and I would go just take photos to use on their websites. Well, of course, by this time I owned my own horse and the minute I got a digital camera, the like first thing I pointed it at was a horse. But this was all before social media and it was really hard to break into equine photography unless you were a horse show photographer. And I had zero interest in standing in the middle of a ring for, you know, 12 hours of a day, um, taking the same photo over and over and over. So um, what also was growing around the same time was wedding photography. And eventually I left all the design stuff and did primarily wedding photography and then some equine photography on the side and really grew that wedding photography business Um which I eventually had to set aside when I had um, an accident where I hit my head on a concrete floor and just had light, lots of lingering effects and headaches and things. And and stress would bring out headaches, and weddings are really stressful, so I was almost always having to shoot the wedding with a lot of Advil,
0: basically. And you weren't even the one getting married. Yeah. I mean,
4: and I wasn't no. even the one getting married, but I was responsible to make really great images yeah. um, every single time. And... So I was like, I wonder what would happen if I just did horses. And this was at the point now where there's social media, so more people are knowing about me, and it's easier to market outside of that horse show context. And I did it. I took the leap, and um, the first year was not easy. You know, it takes a while. but, But then once that focus really shifted and people found out about me, it went gangbusters, and now it's much more, much bigger business than my wedding photography business ever was. But it was—it took a leap of faith to um, let go of the the weddings, the golden handcuffs. You know that that when you have that specific income um, that you can rely on, and and try something that really hasn't been the main income of my business. So, yeah, but you don't have to deal with brides
0: anymore. Too, that's the that? you don't have to deal with brides anymore. So that's the yeah. Good.
4: <laughs> well, there is that, and you know, if you if there are when I do commercial photo shoots, the stakes are are similarly high because I can't reshoot it. But um, when I was focusing on portrait sessions, it's like, oh well, okay, it's raining today, then we don't shoot. Or if the horse is really naughty, then we can reshoot. Um, but you know, now I'm doing more work with companies and and businesses, and they'll bring in models or. Art directors or, you know, like a whole crew of people or I travel for that shoot. And then it's the stakes are very similar to weddings.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I love how you've done both publications. We've used a ton of your photos and you've also won awards for photos that have been like Course Illustrated. Um And anybody who gets the March-April issue, Shelly gets to be featured with two other photographers in our careers article. So you'll get to learn all about equine photography if you get young rider and get some tips from Shelly. What's been your favorite adventure as an equestrian photographer?
4: I think my favorite adventure might be coming up. I'm going to Iceland this June. Wow. Yeah, I'm so excited. I would say prior to that, it would probably be my trip to Chincoteague and Assateague. Um, it was, we had some pretty amazing encounters with uh, the wild ponies out there that, you know, I read the books as a child, the Misty of Chincoteague, the Stormy book, you know, all those books. And it was just such a really neat kind of you know, full circle moment to be in those places and to see those ponies and get to take photos and have it featured in horse illustrated a couple yes. of years ago. And, um, I love that my adventures turn into, um, you know, features in the magazine. I've already talked to the editor of horse illustrated about my Iceland trip. And so that's on her radar <laughs> before I even take
1: a picture. Well, um, your Chincoteague story is online, so I'll make sure to put a link so people can see the pictures. Um, and it's kind of sad. I'll tell myself here: I I grew up in Virginia, and I still haven't been there. Oh my so gosh! Next time you go, if you ever go again, I'll come be your photographer assistant or something. Okay.
0: I <laughs> highly recommend you go in the list. you go in the middle of summer and walk in the woods without fly or bug protection on. I highly yeah, recommend I didn't that. Rope in the state. I <laughs> Yeah,
4: it's it's bad. I mean, and I live in the land of ten thousand lakes and we joke that mosquitoes are our state bird and everything here in Minnesota, but I it was comparable. It was Yeah,
0: really it was really bad there. That's for yeah, sure. Yeah.
4: If you had to
0: if you do you let me rephrase the question. <laughs> do you like to shoot anything but horses? Is there something else that's kind of also a passion on the side when you get a chance?
4: Mm, you know, um, I really love sunrises and sunsets um <laughs> there's but, no
0: cliche uh, in that is there yeah none at all <laughs> and it's
4: so funny because I used to always post like every sunrise and sunset around here at my farm and we've had development now to the west so I can't really get good sunsets but I can still capture good sunrises and like okay I just I need to dial this back like everybody can see a sunrise if they want to <laughs> but um yeah you know just really I really don't and part of it is is just the time it takes to you know edit photos that mm. it's it's easier for me to kind of quote-unquote monetize my efforts um because I have also have a stock library which is where like horse illustrated and and others pull images on um, licensed images from and so even if I'm out just with my own horses I can take photos that can go into that library so um Yeah, I I think about that sometimes. I'm like, I should just go out and take photos for the love of the work, but it still feels like work.
1: Right. Well, I love browsing your library that you have on there. Every time I get the help, look for a specific photo or your silhouette Saturday you did on Instagram. Like, I love all the silhouette shots you have your Morgan shoot that you did for us, and you've got the horses running through the snow. Was that difficult to get? It, I'll, that was on our November, December, I believe, cover of 2021? Yeah. Yeah, um, was that a difficult shoot with that many horses running by?
4: Yeah, I mean, anytime you have a whole herd, it's challenging, you hope that they kind of line up and behave <laughs> as they run across the pasture. Um, That one has kind of a fun story. So that was um, that Morgan Farm is only about 10, 15 minutes from here. And I've been talking to the owner. I've known her for many, many years. We boarded together, you know, back in the, you know, 2000s, (laughs) no, earlier 2000s, you know, probably 10, over 10 years ago, maybe more like 15 and Uh, She works at the local farm store part-time, and I just said, oh, you know, I want to come out and photograph your horses, and we'd been kind of trying to find the right day. And then it was one of those mornings where the frost clings to the tree, and it's they call it hoarfrost but this morning it was actually something called rime frost because it the the thickness of it and the way it really sticks out from the branches of the trees and it's really like the most magical environment for winter photography because the trees are white too like on a normal day the trees are brown even if there's snow on the ground and um because she's only like 15 minutes from me it's was actually more like 10 um i just i woke up that morning i'm like carol can I come out? Are your horses ready to go? And she goes out and I said, well, I'll just finish my coffee and then I'll be out there. And she goes out she takes a picture and the rime frost is literally clinging to the horse's coats. And I said, I will be there as soon as humanly possible (laughs) because I didn't want it to melt or blow off. And we played in the snow for like three hours. It was probably like 10 or 15 degrees. And we're both sweating because we're chasing horses and running around and, you know, (laughs) knee deep snow and and one of those photos is um, the January cover or the January of my um, calendar that I send out each year. And that horse is the mother of the Morgan foal that I got this summer. So I got a Morgan foal from her and I'm raising her here at my farm. Oh, how fun. How, so how old is she now? She is just over six months.
1: So we'll have a lot of full weanling, well,
4: she's already a weanling,
1: but uh, weanling, uh, yearling shots coming up.
4: Yes, and and of course, I spent the whole summer, like, I would go over there almost every day to see her and bond with her. And so I have lots of Morgan photos in my library now and lots of babies because she had a lot of, uh, you know, but she had a lot of babies this summer and um but yeah it's been really a trip i never expected i would get a foal and raise a foal but it just kind of works out
1: oh how fun that's mm-hmm. awesome that's actually uh, my horse i got her as a brand new foal had to wait for her to be born and then raising her through weanling yearling on up to i had her until she was 9 so it's a a definite journey
4: oh that's awesome i'm excited i'm so excited to just watch her grow i mean she's already just like doubled in size since we brought her home in october and um and she's just a sweetheart she's a little dunskin filly and she's like she looks like a yak right now because she's her winter coat is so thick sometimes it'll snow and she'll have that snow still sitting on her back like 24
0: hours later well guys we we could keep talking all day cuz we know and like each other so well, but we we can't. So where can people see your pictures? <laughs> where do they do? Where do they go?
4: Um, they can see, the, my main site is com, And then my stock library is com. And then if you go to any, you know, like Instagram or Facebook, it's Shelly Paulson Photography. And, uh, and then and people can hire you
0: for th- shoots and all that stuff, right?
4: Yeah, I don't yep. do portraits anymore. Now it's okay. it's all um, you know, commercial and branding shoots. Okay. And then I also have an education program for equine photographers who want to um, learn from me, and that's com.
0: And I know uh, that our title sponsor, I know that they use some of your pictures too, Straight Arrow Products. We've seen Yeah,
4: they've they've licensed quite a few images from me for their ads, and I love seeing them in print.
0: Cool. Very good. Well, Shelly, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. We all deal with cuts, scrapes, and rubs on our horses. It's inevitable. It will happen. Make Main & Tail Protect Spray a staple in your safety and care routine when it comes to treating wounds or bacterial infections. The Easy Trigger Spray bottle makes treatment quick and painless for both horse and rider, while its antimicrobial properties give off the power to ward off infection-causing bacteria. Keep your safety check nerves at bay with Main & Tail Protect Spray. Our final guest is Dale Rudin, the founder of Pure Joy Horsemanship, a welfare-centered approach to equine education and care, and Pure Joy Horsehaven, a sanctuary and rehabilitation program for horses who have suffered from trauma. She's also a certified Horsemanship Association, certified riding instructor, and a certified equine nutritionist. Well, hi, Dale. Welcome back to Horses in the Morning. Good to have you again.
2: Thank you. It's great to be back.
0: You know, this is your third time on the show. That makes you an old pro. (laughs)
2: i'm proud of my oldness
0: (laughs) yeah me too because you know what the alternative ain't great either so there's that
2: exactly
0: (laughs) now dale we've talked to you in the past and we've talked to you about training and just kind of give a little bit uh give us the reader's digest of what you do remind everybody what you do in, in the sanctuary and real real rehabilitation program and all of that
2: um, sure. I am, um, I have an equine sanctuary for traumatized and abused horses and I, I help horses that have emotional and physical trauma because of abuse, you know, it can be unintentional. I, I think there's a lot of misinformation about what horses uh, are able to tolerate and what's appropriate in regard to how we handle horses and how we treat horses. And the horses may be able to manage for a period of time, but they will get to a point where they're going to have serious physical or psychological issues. And and then they can get passed around from person to person or end up in auctions and situations like that. So I've come across a lot of these horses because I'm also – training um, and helping clients that way. And sometimes I'm called out on a horse that is really a long-term rehabilitation case. It's not a behavior modification case. So I, um, these are the kinds of horses that we will take on because I don't want them to be like in the system, you know, being that, you know, being passed around or um, misunderstood so we do that, and then I am a an evidence-based, compassionate, welfare-centered, all those kinds of happy <laughs> you know terms uh, trainer. And I also help people with saddle fit, and I consult on nutrition. I'm an equine nutritionist, and I'm trying to I'm trying to spread the word about welfare, you know, equine welfare, horse we well welfare and how we can have horses in our lives and enjoy them in a way that's beneficial and not harmful to them.
0: Well I, I like your approach too because you're dealing with the whole horse. You're not just taking a piece. I mean you're taking the you're taking the nutrition aspect, you're taking the saddle fit aspect, the behavior aspect, all of those things into account. And a lot of times we have separate people for all those things. And sometimes, just like we do our own doctors in our own life, right? You have separate people for everything, you know? And I like the fact that you can kind of put all those pieces together and go, oh, maybe maybe one or two of these isn't matching and we should correct that.
2: Thank you. I, I have found, you know, I've been working with horses professionally for, for over 35 years, and I found that if there's a hole, you know, a piece missing in the puzzle— in one area, it can, you know, everything collapses. It's that house of cards situation. Um, so the more, the more I want to do for the horses and, and to create good experiences for them and the people who are, you know, interacting with them and love them, the more I realize I need to know more. I need to be able to recognize those areas um, and then be able to help.
0: Well, a good analogy is a general contractor for building a house, right? Um, You're kind of taking that general contractor role. Uh, And then, you know, there's subcontractors, but somebody's in charge of the whole process, of the whole uh, making sure that everything comes together in the end. And in your case, with rehabilitating a horse, you are taking a look at all those pieces. You're taking a look at the mental, the physical, you know, the emotional, all of those things. Uh,
2: Absolutely, 100%. And, yeah, and you know, it's like if a horse – is in pain, how can they behave, you know, at their best? They can't. They're, they're physically upset and, you know, unable to perform what we're asking them to do. And then there's the emotional component. And, you know, I've gotten into the neurologic side of things a lot in the last couple of years because there is a neurologic response to pain or anxiety or distress that is going to interfere with everything we're asking them to do. And if we don't recognize that, then we're putting the horse in a really bad situation that will only get worse. And, um, so it's, you have to look at everything and I don't think there's any other way to do it, even though I used to do it differently. You know, I'd be like, Oh, here's a problem. Let's focus on that instead of what, you know, what could be causing it? What's the underlying source of this particular behavior or, performance issues. I'm glad you
0: corrected yourself because, yes, there are other ways of doing it. They may not be correct, but that's the way <laughs> I would say more people are doing it that way than the other way. So that's why we're here so yeah. you you right. recently because you do clinics too so and you have for mm-hmm. a long time and you recently did an article and I want to focus a little bit on this because we are in January and it's you know it's a time of year when people are looking forward they're making their plans for the year maybe they're booking clinics for the year that they've been wanting to do and this you know the clinician schedules are coming out now and whether you're writing or you're auditing or whatever you did an article recently in Horse Illustrated getting the most out of clinics can we talk about that and go into what what you think people should be thinking and preparing for when they when they schedule their clinics this year? How do they get the most out of them? Because in a lot of cases, you're paying a lot of money, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it definitely varies. And, you know, how to get the most out of the clinic, I think the first thing you have to do is go with an open mind because – you know, it's a very, like, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, unless you really know the clinician or you've been with them before, you know, people who've gone through it, you know, basically anything can happen in a clinic. It's, it's life. It's just a few days during life, which can be unexpected and amazing and wonderful. Um, And so I think, you know, whatever you've chosen to work with that person that clinician for a reason and, you know, just go in and just embrace what's happening there and what you're seeing. Um, And, you know, I think that's the most important thing because like me personally, if I go to a really new environment, you know, especially if I'm, if I am taking a horse or even if I'm just going to learn, I'm going to be a little bit anxious about that. You know, what's it going to be like, what's going to happen? What am I going to learn? And my opinion is, Look at everything that comes your way, and it may work for you. It may work for your horse. It may not. And if it doesn't, that's okay. It's still really valuable information that you can take with you as you, you know, progress down your journey of horsemanship. And and um, and so it's going to benefit you in some way.
0: Well, you've all seen, though, those people who show up at the clinic, and you wonder why they're there because— They're being told, you know, do it this way, and it's not the way they were taught to do it, right? So they're resisting that because that's not how I do it. Uh, And they're almost—they almost get to the point where they're confused about why it's different and why they're being told. And then once you're in that spiral at a clinic, you're—you're spiraling, right? So uh, good clinicians can bring that person back and recognizes what's happening uh, you know but i think that is one of the mistakes that people who are going to the clinic make is they don't go in with an open or they think they're going in with an open mind till they're told to do something that's radical
2: right and and i experience that because i think less so than it has been you know in the past but what i do is very radical i'm telling people Give your horse a choice. Oh, it just did something that you know you don't like or you don't want it to be doing. But don't worry about it; <laughs> it's okay. And you know that is the opposite of what most people hear: is that you know the horse should be very obedient and submissive and all that. And I throw all that out the window. So I get a lot of you know that tilted what <laughs> <laughs> you know the tilted head. And um, but I work really hard to explain why, and to try to give people a different perspective. And so, you know, I think a different perspective is always beneficial. Um, and, you know, and then I also want to say, too, because this is, this is where I go, you know, personally, is if, if you're being asked to do something that you think is harmful to your horse in any way, uh, then say then just respectfully say, I would rather not do that. Um, and and don't because you're your horse's advocate and you' your horse only has you to tell you know to protect them so so things there are going to be situations that you know that discomfort that you're feeling is a signal to tell you that this isn't appropriate
1: I think one of your best tips in the article was about um, choosing a clinician, you know looking at their philosophy and their areas of expertise teaching style things like that and making sure like it kind of fits with what you're looking for because you don't want to choose someone that's completely opposite of where you might be on a spectrum that just is going to direct you in the complete wrong direction from where you want to go
2: Hmm.
1: i thought that was a good tip
2: yeah i've, I've known people who um who went to clinics and, you know, had amazing enlightening, eye-opening experiences. And then also like their horse after two or three days was, was really traumatized. So it can go either way. And that's, that's part of that going in with, you know, maybe not just an open mind, but being aware and mindful Mm -hmm. of what's happening. So, you know, you can, you can get out of it the most you can get out of it, but also understanding if a line is being crossed. Is that, you know, if that makes sense?
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, People want to go and and I want to go and have continuing education that inspires me. And sometimes, you know, you can have a a major mind, mindset change and whatnot, and that could be a great thing. Um, But I think people following their gut instinct is, is good, too.
0: And that does teach them a lesson, right? It teaches them what what they don't do or what they won't do, right? It, right. It, yeah. it, it sets those boundaries for the future.
2: Information is always power. I always tell people, I'm like, go watch, go see anybody, and then you can see the effects, you know, one way or the other, whether they're positive effects or negative effects.
0: Theo, why does it have to be so damn hard sometimes? <laughs> it's <just> like
2: <laughs> it, It's so freaking hard. <laughs> yeah. And that's why... <laughs> excuse me, that's why I have shifted so much to, to, you know, neurologic, seeing things as a neurologic response versus my opinion, <laughs> why something's happening. Like the horse is behaving a certain way. I'm like, Oh, he's, he's having a, you know, um, an, an instinct of a reflexive reaction to something instead of what a jerk, <laughs> you know, that kind of a thing. <clears throat> and that's because, because when you look at it from the science, Side, then you can at least have a way better shot at not getting it wrong. Because when we have an opinion about it or we're judging it or we're looking at something the way, you know, we've been told for decades, which was my experience, you know, and that it's all opinion based, the odds of getting it wrong are really high and it, it, we do a disservice to the horse and to ourselves too, because then we're stuck in that um, mindset.
0: You know, I, we've spent – well, obviously, my co-host Monday, Wednesday, and Friday is a Monty Roberts-certified instructor, and, we, you know, we've done Monty's show for years, and I've gotten to know them over there. And, you know, that's – Monty, I think, was one of the first ones preaching this, but – and boy, did he get ridiculed for it. You know, he got he got mm-hmm. over the coals for all of – you know, for talking like you're talking, that that there's a reason. You know, <laughs> there's always a reason. Um because yeah. you know a lot of people. Well, the problem with there's always a reason is it takes time and effort to figure it out.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 then what if you don't have that knowledge, you know, to apply? Then then you're not going to feel, you know, you know, because we have emotional responses too. So then you're like, I don't feel good about this. I'm just going to make it work for me, and then I'll feel better. Yay me! And then the horse is like, "What's happening? <laughs> I don't know what to do." And and then there's conflict. And that, you know, when that happens, I mean, you know, and we all know this. If we if we get stuck in that pattern of, you know, of, of trying to force things, you know, the the round peg in the square hole is that the right way of saying it. Um, uh, then, actually, I think a round peg will fit in a square hole.
0: I was and just think thinking that myself. I was going, "Wait a minute, that might actually work." I was like. I think it's the other way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the other way. Um, Then things will, you know, deteriorate. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. But sometimes, you know, I don't know, I think, I mean, sorry, humanity, but I think we give ourselves way too much credit. <laughs> sometimes. And, well,
0: you know, and I can understand the emotion of it too. You, you, one, a lot of times, you spend a lot of money, you spent a lot of time to get to the point where you are. You only have a limited amount of time to spend with your horse in the first place, and that so then when things don't go well, quote unquote, it's it's hard. It's hard emotionally. It's it you know it's tough. It's just tough. Well, but isn't that true of relationships with people?
2: Hundred percent. Mm. I'm way better with horses than people yeah
0: but that seems to be a theme on our shows actually Um, (laughs) we had a boarding stable if we could have done it without the people it would have been great it would have been perfect. Oh my
2: God. <laughs> I'm getting better though. I'm getting better. Uh,
0: <laughs> I think that comes more, with age or we don't care as much. It, it, See, I think the older we get, the less we care. I think that's part, <laughs> part of it too. <laughs>
2: uh, well, at least, at least I understand. I mean, I just, you know, I mean, I think it's easier for me to understand horses, but the more I understand about horses, the more I understand about myself. And then the more I understand about horses and myself, the more I understand about other people. That's and, true. You know, so yeah, it's, it's it's I'm getting there. <laughs> give, what, give me a so, little more time. So Just,
0: what else would you say about going to clinics?
2: So, you know, I, one of the things that I I love about giving clinics and going to clinics too is that, you know, people come together who may have never met. Um, you know, again, it's this this fresh new environment. Nobody knows what to expect, and at first, and this is something I noticed, it, in my clinics first I come in, you know, everybody comes in and there's just that, like, you know, a little bit of a deer in the headlights thing. And then by the end of the session, we're all friends and we all know each other somehow because of our connection with the horses and how we, you know, we, we learn how the other people view the world because of what they, you know, how they interact with their horses. And they, there's, there's like this, you know, it's a very personal experience for people, I think, when they come to my clinic, because I'm really, you know, we're focusing on the horses, but it's our relationship with the horse and what we bring to the table that is going to make a change, a positive change. You know, we ha- we're we the change. And it's just, I, I'm kind of feeling a little emotional talking about it, because I think it's such a, it, it's a bit of a profound experience for some people, and they're like, wow, I didn't realize that. You know, my past trauma has been—you know—hard for me to interact with this horse, and you know, and all those emotions that that we're dealing with all the time. And um, it, it's—I don't know—I'm kind of getting a little. Well, like, oh my you God. know,
0: it's I'm like, so glad Whoa. that I am so glad that you brought that up because what? Two things here. Um, those light bulb moments. Um, I believe that we have, and everybody knows what I'm talking about. There, I think. I think. In my opinion, we have about 10 of those in our lifetime. Those those true light bulb moments where the light bulb comes on and you just get it. You know, the thing you haven't gotten for years, you get it. And I believe that's true of riders too. They have those and you get to see them in clinics sometimes. You get to see that light bulb moment that changes everything. And and then a lot of times not, right? But you do get the you get to see those and and the smart riders recognize them as light bulb moments. We go, oh yeah, I get it now. But that's the process of learning. There, are, you know, There's all these levels of learning, and, and those light bulb moments only come after you've gotten through that level each time. So you get through the six or seven levels of learning, and you get the light bulb moment, and then you start over. So that's why I believe you have 10 of those in your lifetime. But I was hoping you would go where you went, and that's the relationships you can make while at these clinics. I say the same thing when going to conferences. It's not the sessions that are important at the conference. Yeah, you might learn something. It's what happens in the hallways. It's who you meet that are going to affect the rest of your life. Those relationships are the things that are going to affect the rest of your life. And I believe that's true at clinics too.
2: I have the exact same experience, and I love that you brought up conferences because I can't wait to go to CHA conferences You know, because I get to see – these amazing people. And it's like, you know, there's always that underlying thread of commonality, you know, that we all have a passion for horses in one way or another. And so, you know, right from the beginning that's there and everybody can kind of grab onto that. And then, and then we learn who everybody is. And, um, and that's, you know, it's one of the things I like about CHA so much is that, is that, it's like, oh, we're all part of this together. Let's support each other. And the same thing happens at clinics. You know, I mean, I think that that's, it, it, you know, and I encourage people to seek out clinics that that provide that because nothing is just about one thing. You know, going to a horsemanship clinic is not just about horsemanship. It's not just about improving your horse's performance or your relationship. It's This is life. I mean, we're not, like, stepping out of life to go to a clinic. A clinic is is part of that continuum. And I absolutely agree with you 100% is those relationships, they can last a lifetime.
1: I'm glad you brought up um, CHA and the connection you have with, uh, you know, as a writing instructor, because um, I was curious how, like, when you're teaching students, are they very open-minded to your new techniques and whatnot that you're using and, and absorbing it. Or is there like, I was curious if there was like a level of resistance or what you're seeing now as with the next generation of riders and as new riders come in and whatnot.
2: It's such an interesting question. Uh, it's a great question. And, and it's such an interesting experience for me because I, I think I, I think there's a it's coming. You know, I'm looking at it from a couple different angles. One, I think people seek me out because there's something that I present that's appealing to them that they're looking for. I'm looking for somebody who's going to put my horse's welfare first. And, you know, and mm-hmm. and maybe they've had an experience where they and they share this with me um, frequently. The, this kind of a story where. I, I, you know, I saw something, you know, I was working with somebody and I saw what they were doing to my horse and it made me sick or my horse got hurt or, you know, it was getting worse, not better, you know, those kinds of situations. And so they're looking for that already and um, or they're somehow open to it. But then when we start working together, it seems that. The, the process or the, let me say it differently, that when I start to expose them to what's going on underneath, you know, with their relationship with the horse's um, experience and perception, it's like, it's like such a, I, I think it's one of those moments that you're talking about, Glenn, is one of those light bulb moments for, for most people they are like, Oh, that makes so much sense because, you know, they, they didn't understand the why, and it's like, it's almost like a relief. And for some people it's really kind of heartbreaking for them too, because they didn't understand what was really going on and why their horse was behaving the way they were, or, you know, what their the physical, you know, damage that was being done because of the saddle or, you know, all those things they're like, well, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of mind blowing for them, but it also sets this, this, like precedent for them for the rest of their lives. Like, I really don't want my horse to go through that anymore. I want to learn how to do things differently and do it better.
1: Well, for those who want to learn more from you and uh, learn more about all your services and about your sanctuary and everything, where can they find you online?
2: They can find me at our websites and they are purejoyhorsemanship.com and that's my my training uh, website training and consultation services and our sanctuary is purejoyhorsehaven.org and you can read about the horses that we have and learn more about how you can help us and support our mission to improve lives, horses' lives and and. Also, people's lives. Um, you know, every, we're all connected. So um, we're really excited about that. We're a new nonprofit, and we're just, like, over the moon excited about where all this could go. And, um, and having the sanctuary, I just want to add this, having the sanctuary is helping me help other people and horses. I'm learning so much from these horses that are, that are coming to us, you know, how to help them. And, and I, I get to pass that out pass that information on to my clients and students. It's, it's pretty amazing and fantastic and great. <laughs> cool. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you both so much for having me. I
2: enjoyed it immensely I, I really appreciate it.
1: We want to thank our title sponsor, the Straight Arrow family of brands, makers of mane and tail, cowboy magic, and exhibitors with over 100 years of grooming excellence. For more information about your favorite products, please visit straight arrow com and find their products at a tack shop near you. Horse Illustrated can be found at horseillustrated.com and all of our podcasts can be found at horseillustrated.com slash podcast.
0: Find the links to today's guests in the show notes at horsesinthemorning.com or horseillustrated.com slash podcast. You can follow Horses in the Morning on Facebook. Just search for Horses in the Morning. And we have like 20 some shows. You can find them all on our app. It's, you just search for Horse Radio Network, on iPhone or Android, it pops up. And go to your app store and search for that, Horse Radio Network. And you can find all of our shows everywhere podcasts are found.
1: Happy reading and riding.